42-year-old Brian Canavan was out of his element. In 2004, he left his home in Boston to fly 6,000 miles to the Middle Eastern country of Jordan. He was about to embark on one of the riskiest business ventures on Earth. If he succeeded, he could make millions. If he failed, he could die. Within hours of arriving, Canavan walked from his hotel to a local bank and stood in line. When it was his turn, he told the teller he wanted to withdraw 50,000 U.S. dollars from his account. The teller complied, placing the stacks before him and counting the total out. Then the teller put it in a paper bag and sent Canavan on his way. As he walked out, it felt like everyone was watching him. Criminals, including Al-Qaeda, had been known to rob people carrying such large sums. But to his relief, Canavan made it back to his hotel room without any trouble. He waited there until he heard a knock on his door. It was his contact and two armed guards. Canavan handed over the $50,000. In return, his contact delivered millions of Iraqi banknotes called dinar. Once the deal was done, the three men left. Canavan flew out of Jordan and returned to the United States. The successful trip set about dozens more just like it. Throughout 2004, Canavan traveled back to buy even more dinar, each time risking his life. But it paid off. Once Canavan got back to the States, he'd sell a million dinar for $800. The banknotes weren't worth much, but thousands of Americans considered them an investment opportunity. They hoped their foreign currency would one day be worth a fortune in U.S. dollars. Canavan was straightforward, telling his customers that their investment was risky, but few listened. They had their own hopes that the currency would either shoot up again, repeating history, or something else would affect it. Perhaps the U.S. government already had a hand in manipulating the dinar. Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, a Spotify original from ParCast. Every Monday and Wednesday, we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. You can find episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. Today we'll be discussing Iraq's currency, the dinar. We'll address its history, why its value soared, only to suddenly crash in the late 1970s, and how three savvy men made millions by investing in it. Then, we'll dive into two theories about the dinar. First, we'll consider if terrorist groups are manipulating it. Then, we'll examine whether an event known as a global currency reset could make its value skyrocket once again. We'll have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. For hundreds of years, Iraq was a part of a sprawling kingdom known as the Ottoman Empire. 
It was one of the world's most powerful nations from 1299 AD until it was seized by Britain during World War I in 1918. As the empire broke up, the victors divided its territories. The British controlled Iraq for 12 years until it gained its independence on October 3, 1932. Once the UK left, Iraq transitioned to using the dinar. At the time, Iraq didn't have the capability to create its own cash, so they turned to a British moneymaker called Delarue for help. Part of the currency printing process includes adding images to the bills. For example, the U.S. dollar has George Washington and other icons. Firms create these designs using metal plates with pictures engraved on them. The plates that Delarue used were made in Switzerland, so Iraq's banknotes were nicknamed the Swiss dinar. Their value steadily grew over the years because Iraq controlled 10% of the world's oil reserves. It traded with countries all over the world. From 1932 until the 1970s, Iraq's economy was so strong that its banknotes were worth four times more than the U.S. dollar. The Swiss dinar maintained its value until dictator Saddam Hussein seized power in 1979. His oppressive rule destabilized the nation and ruined the oil industry. The currency's value plummeted. Nevertheless, from the 1990s onward, investors bought piles of dinar. Even though it was virtually worthless, they hoped that Iraq would somehow stabilize and their economy would get back on track. Then, the dinar could be exchanged for millions of U.S. dollars. That buying spree from the 1990s to the late 2000s allowed men like Brian Canavan to sell dinar to hopeful buyers. However, whenever an interested party contacted Canavan, he gave them a warning. The investment was risky. Iraq was volatile, and it was unlikely that they'd see a return. But in 2008, three savvy investors who had no connection to Canavan did the opposite. They turned their Iraqi banknotes into millions of U.S. dollars. Brad Hebner and Charles Emenecker invested in the currency that year. Like Canavan, they also set up a business to sell it to investors, which they called the BH Group. They hired 40-year-old Rudolf Conan to help run the company. Rudy, as they called him, assured them that he had relevant experience. He said he'd won a Purple Heart while serving in Iraq and was a former vice president of J.P. Morgan Chase. In order to bolster their investors' confidence, the trio held weekly conference calls to discuss when the dinar's value would shoot up. People could dial in or listen to recordings that Hebner posted later on their site. On the calls, the business partners discussed two important pieces of legislation. The first was Executive Order 13303, passed by President George W. Bush five years earlier. It lifted trade sanctions imposed on Iraq and also protected certain investments that helped the country rebuild. The second was called the Overseas Investment Protection Act. BH Group explained that it specifically protected the rights of U.S. citizens who purchased Iraq's money. Because of these conversations, thousands of people believed they were guaranteed a return on their investment. 
they continued buying from Hebner and Ammenecker. Even though their company was making a huge profit, the men wanted to generate more wealth. To do so, they established a hedge fund. Hedge funds create a portfolio of stocks, bonds, and other investments. They're attractive because they're designed to yield a large return, regardless of what the market does. Hebner's strategy was to reach out to clients who'd bought cash from him in the past. He told them that once they made their millions, they could put some of it back into a hedge fund. Then they could make even more money. It sounded like a great bargain, and a lot of people were interested. The only catch was the dinar that they'd bought hadn't increased in value yet. But Hebner told them that they could still reserve their spot with a $750 deposit. The deal was so attractive that almost 1,000 people paid to join. It was a small price to pay for such a lucrative opportunity. Everything was going smoothly until Hebner started receiving anonymous emails in 2011. They warned him that Rudy Conan wasn't who he said he was. He was a con man. While Conan had gone to boot camp to become a Marine, he'd failed. He also hadn't been a VP at Chase Bank. He'd been hired for an entry-level position at one of their branches, only to be promptly fired one day later. Hebner was terrified. He met with an FBI agent on July 27, 2011, to inform them that he was working with a dangerous criminal. But in all likelihood, the FBI was already aware of Conan and BH Group, because all of the BH Group had been under investigation for months. The truth was, the men had knowingly committed wire fraud. They knew their actions were illegal. Hebner took a surprising course of action. Rather than stay away from federal authorities, he told them everything. He seemed to think the FBI would arrest Conan and leave him alone. But while Hebner threw his business partner under the bus, FBI agents raided his home and office. They collected evidence, including Iraqi notes worth 241,000 U.S. dollars. The bills were stuffed in cabinets, drawers, and even ovens. After this discovery, Hebner, Emenecker, and Conan were arrested. Over the course of a 10-day trial, the prosecution explained the charges. An attorney showed the jury a 25,000 dinar note and told them it was worth about 25 U.S. dollars. He explained that exchanging the Iraqi currency for U.S. dollars at a bank was legal. It was also lawful for people to sell it as an investment. But what dealers weren't allowed to do was claim that buying the foreign cash was a guaranteed way to make millions. And BH Group had told their customers they would definitely see a huge return. On phone calls, Hebner had told potential investors they'd see payoffs of 17,000%. BH Group had also deliberately lied about the two laws that supposedly protected overseas investments. Executive Order 13303 was only meant to guard federal money going to Iraq, not private investments. As for the Overseas Investment Protection Act, it was completely made up. The prosecution brought numerous witnesses to the stand who confirmed that Hebner and his cronies had told them the venture was guaranteed. 
They proved that BH Group had made $23.8 million from selling dinar. They'd made another 700000 from selling reservations to the hedge fund. Ultimately, all three men were sentenced to a total of 14 years in prison. After the ordeal with BH Group, several states tried to teach the public how to recognize dinar fraud. They also warned that even if sellers weren't scamming them, they still needed to be cautious. They probably wouldn't make money from Iraqi currency. But despite the government's best efforts, people kept buying. Journalists who investigated the phenomenon concluded that it was probably the result of sheer stupidity. But that might not be totally accurate. There's a slight chance that the dinar's value could still increase after all these years. Perhaps investors aren't ignorant. They may see something the rest of us don't. Coming up, the forces behind the dinar's rise in value. Hi there, it's Carter from ParCast. If you haven't had a chance to check out the riveting true crime series Solved Murders, there's no better time to tune in. Throughout the month of August, Solved Murders is featuring four celebrations that took a turn for the deadly in a special series we're calling Party Fowls. From a murder in the New York nightclub scene and a house party gone horribly wrong, to a terrifying evening at the Tate residence and a sex party with sinister results. Go deeper inside for affairs remembered for all the wrong reasons. And if you like what you hear with party fouls and want to uncover more of history's most captivating cases, be sure to follow Solved Murders on Spotify. There you'll find a new episode released every Wednesday. Solved Murders is a Spotify original from ParCast. Listen free only on Spotify. Now back to the story. Beginning in the 1990s, investors speculated on the Iraqi dinar. Roughly three decades later, its value hasn't changed much. Still, those hoping to get rich quick keep buying the currency. As unwise as it seems, there's a chance the cash may become more valuable if enemies of the United States are manipulating the currency. Which leads us to conspiracy theory number one. Terrorist cells in the Middle East will artificially inflate the value of the dinar. In order to understand how currency is manipulated, first we have to explain natural fluctuations in value. And to understand that, we have to dive back into Iraq's history. As we discussed earlier, Iraq flourished for almost 50 years after it gained its independence in 1932. Its currency was more valuable than that of the U.S. and other world superpowers. However, after Saddam Hussein became president in 1979, the dinar plummeted. A year after Hussein took over, he launched an attack on Iraq's neighbor, Iran. The conflict lasted until 1988 and only ended when the UN negotiated a ceasefire between the two countries. Hussein's ill-fated war put Iraq $86 billion in debt. Instead of paying it off, though, Hussein turned his attention to Kuwait, a small country on Iraq's southern border. 
Although tiny, Kuwait controlled 9% of the world's oil and had a lucrative economy. They also used a similar monetary system with the Kuwaiti dinar. But unlike Iraq, Kuwait had been stable for years. So while Iraq's Swiss dinar had plummeted, Kuwait's finances remained strong. Their currency was worth three U.S. dollars. Hussein wanted to seize Kuwait for himself. With two countries under his rule, he'd control almost 20% of the world's oil reserves, more than any other nation. That would make him one of the most powerful leaders of his time. So on August 2nd, 1990, Hussein ordered his troops to attack. Kuwait fell in just two days. Iraq immediately overhauled their financial system. They removed their banknotes from circulation and replaced them with their own. Since the Kuwaiti dinar was no longer in use, its value fell to five cents. But Iraq's rule was short-lived. In January 1991, a United Nations coalition of 34 countries launched the Gulf War against Hussein's forces. For two months, they bombed strategic Iraqi bases in Kuwait. The attack was so devastating, it forced Hussein to sign a ceasefire and withdraw all of his troops. In March 1991, Kuwait reinstated their own bills again. By March 25th, the currency was back at $3.47. This rebound meant that the Kuwaiti dinar had shot up by roughly 6,900% in just a few weeks. In practice, let's imagine a businessman named Sam. If he bought one million in Kuwaiti funds in December 1990, he would have spent 50,000 US dollars. Then, when the war ended four months later, that purchase would have been worth $3,470,000 U.S. dollars. But Iraq's economy didn't enjoy a similar boom. After their defeat in the Gulf War, the United Nations put economic sanctions on them. They couldn't trade with Western countries at all. Iraq could no longer work with the British printing firm Delarue. Instead, the Central Bank of Iraq began making its own cash. The new bills had Hussein's portrait on them and were called the Saddam Dinar. However, Iraq's process wasn't as nearly advanced as Britain's. Typically, what we call paper money isn't made of paper at all. It's actually a combination of cotton and linen. But Iraq didn't have the capability to recreate that quality. They had to use actual paper, which tore easily and bled ink when exposed to water. Iraq circulated these cheaper substitutes for 12 years, and those years were fraught with violence. Hussein brutalized his own people and threatened the surrounding countries. Finally, U.S. soldiers invaded Iraq in 2003. Officially, they were there to arrest Hussein and put an end to his rule. And when the tyrant was out of the way, U.S. officials set up a temporary governing body called the Coalition Provisional Authority, better known as the CPA. Between October 2003 and early 2004, the CPA continued printing Iraq's money. They needed to do so to keep the economy running. But after January, the agency worked with De La Rue to make a third form of legal tender. Some referred to this new currency as the post-war dinar. 
the CPA encouraged the Iraqi people to exchange the old notes they'd been using, the Swiss and Saddam versions, for the post-war bills. The exchange rate for the Saddam notes was one-to-one. That meant if someone turned in five Saddam bills, they got five post-war dinar in return. However, since the Swiss notes were better quality and worth more, one Swiss dinar was worth 150 post-war dinar. A lot of people turned in Swiss cash, and the U.S. had to constantly print more post-war bills to keep up with the demand. This led to a proliferation of notes. There were at least 70 trillion dinar in existence, 30 trillion of which belonged to private investors and speculators. In economics, the more common something is, the less rare and valuable it becomes. But the people hoping to get rich overnight didn't really pay attention to that fact. They simply hoped that Iraq's money would bounce back, just like how Kuwait's had. Frankly, the belief wasn't that far-fetched. It would just take a long time for the dinar to regain its value. But some groups didn't want to wait. An extremist movement known as ISIS tried to expedite the process. The Islamic State, or ISIS, rose to prominence in 2014. It wanted to spread its rule and create an Islamic government called a caliphate that spanned across the globe. 30,000 fighters joined its cause and quickly took control of northern Syria and Iraq, a region roughly the size of the United Kingdom. Then it set up its own government to rule the 10 million civilians in their territory. It kept its populace in line by imposing strict Islamic laws. Anyone who broke them could be enslaved or beheaded. Reportedly, ISIS was so brutal, even terror cell Al-Qaeda disowned them. In 2015, a journalist named Rachel Rose O'Leary met with a member of ISIS who'd been captured by Syrian forces. He agreed to explain how his former comrades planned to take over the world. But he was so terrified of retribution that he went by the pseudonym Muhammad Najjar. Najjar was tense when the interview began, but he became more relaxed as they talked. He told O'Leary, quote, The plan was to destroy the global economy. It had all begun two years earlier when Najjar had first joined ISIS. He had a background in the petroleum business, so he helped ISIS with its own oil industry. ISIS had a process of putting crude oil in barrels and then selling it to Damascus, the Iraqi government, and other rebel factions throughout the Middle East. In the early days, they made $60 million a month. The only problem was, it was all in U.S. dollars. This was directly conflicting with ISIS's claim that they wanted to destroy the United States. But if they traded in their enemies' funds, that meant they were actually supporting the American economy. In order to move away from the U.S. dollar, ISIS created the gold dinar. These were 24-karat gold coins worth 165 U.S. dollars apiece. ISIS believed that when they took over more territory, they'd make their new citizens use the gold dinar as well. As they spread their caliphate, their currency would steadily replace the U.S. dollar and make it worthless. ISIS hoped this economic tactic would dethrone the United States and give them the upper hand. 
The countries that wanted to buy barrels from ISIS had to first exchange their dollars for gold dinar. By 2015, the caliphate declared that it was illegal to use anything but their coins in the territory they controlled. On August 31st, 2015, they released a video titled The Rise of the Khalifa and the Return of the Gold Dinar. It was an hour-long documentary explaining the motives behind the economic experiment. They said that all countries needed to break away from banknotes and a, quote, satanic system of capitalism. They hoped the gold dinar would help accomplish this. But their plan was short-lived. In 2016, the U.S. Air Force began bombing ISIS oil fields. The attacks cut the extremists off from their most valuable resource and prevented them from trading it. Because they didn't have petroleum to sell, ISIS couldn't force buyers to use their legal tender. Ultimately, the gold dinar plummeted. ISIS had no choice but to abandon the economic experiment. They melted the coins down and sold them off. By the end of 2019, ISIS had lost all of its territory in Iraq and Syria. The Iraqi government declared victory over the extremists. But even in defeat, ISIS is still active. Some U.S. intelligence reports claim they have 14,000 members who will remain in hiding until ordered to act. And U.S. military analysts warn they've launched a virtual caliphate. They use social media platforms to gather followers and spread their influence. In addition to finding new recruits, they may still be manipulating currency. But this time, their focus may be on Iraqi dinar. They could suppress its value to prevent the country from growing economically and to spite U.S. investors. However, there isn't much evidence that they have the resources to influence Iraq's economy to any notable degree. They just don't have the reach they used to. Maybe, but just before a major defeat in 2019, an ISIS publication suggested they might have moved their minting facilities out of Syria and Iraq. Safe in another country, ISIS could have continued their operations without anyone knowing. Maybe they used the money-making facilities to create additional notes. That would allow them to flood the market with even more bills and ultimately drive its value down. Except nobody found any evidence of those operations. In fact, there's empirical proof that Iraq's money is gaining value, not losing it. In 2007, it took 1,300 dinar to equal one U.S. dollar, but as of August 2020, it took 1,200. It might not sound like much, but that's a positive return of 6.5%. The currency may slowly and surely get back to where it once was. At that point, those who invested in it just might make the millions they always dreamed of. For this conspiracy theory to work, ISIS would have to have a massive secret operation that's totally hidden from the rest of the world. And since the dinar is gaining value, this scheme doesn't work. That's why on a scale of 1 to 10, where 1 is totally unbelievable and 10 means essentially true, I give conspiracy theory number 1 a 2 out of 10. We know ISIS has attempted to manipulate currency in the past. 
I agree that they may not have the resources to depress the Iraqi dinar right now, but that doesn't mean they're not trying. I give this theory a 4 out of 10. ISIS isn't the only group with a motive to influence the dinar's value. The U.S. government may have implemented secret policies known as the Global Currency Reset, allegedly. And these plans are far-reaching enough to alter every economy in the world. Coming up, the government's supposed plan to create a single monetary system. Now back to the story. For 30 years, investors hoped the Iraq dinar would increase in value, but that still hasn't happened. And despite ISIS's role in currency manipulation before 2019, it probably isn't playing a large role in the dinar today. But world leaders might be pulling the strings to implement a much larger change, something that will affect money all over the world. This leads us to conspiracy theory number two. The Global Currency Reset, or GCR, will increase the value of all the world's currencies, including the Iraqi dinar. Economist and author Marcus Curtis traced the origins of the GCR in his book, The Truth About the Coming Global Reset. He suggested that the conspiracy began with an obscure paper known as the National Economic Security and Reformation Act. Better known as NASARA, it was a set of economic reforms created by Dr. Harvey Barnard in the late 1980s and early 90s. He'd come to believe that the U.S. was economically unstable. He argued that personal debt and the interest collected off it hindered economic growth. It put too many people in poverty. Bernard proposed that the U.S. should overhaul its economic system by eliminating the IRS and income tax and completely forgive everyone's loans. That way, people could keep more of their earnings, provide for their families, and create a more stable economy. Barnard believed that this plan would reset the global financial system and put everyone on a level playing field. He turned his theory into a proposed bill, printed 1,000 copies, and sent them to select individuals throughout the government, including every member of Congress. Bernard figured that everyone would agree with his sweeping reforms, and officials would start implementing them within a week. Understandably, that never happened. Only one congressman even acknowledged that he'd received the proposal, and he ultimately dismissed it. Others probably tossed Bernard's plan in the trash. Even if the authorities had liked these ideas, it takes a lot more than one week to fundamentally change the U.S. economy. Bernard eventually realized that his plans would never come to fruition in his lifetime. But even though the government never sponsored Nassara and its proposed reset, the idea still found supporters. One woman named Shaney Goodwin believed that officials secretly supported Nassara. According to her, they'd passed the bill without anyone knowing. Goodwin first heard about Nassara in the early 2000s, and she soon started her own movement to promote the legislation. Over the years, she built an online presence and gathered hundreds of thousands of followers worldwide. 
In her newsletters and public messages, she announced that she was the only person who knew the truth about Nassara. According to Goodwin, U.S. President Bill Clinton had signed it into law while he was in office. But the banks had convinced him, Congress, and the media to keep it a secret. Collecting debt was one of the most lucrative ways financial institutions made money. If people found out about Nassara, it would financially ruin their business. Curtis, the author of the Global Currency Reset book, tried to verify Goodwin's claims and determine if the Nassara really had passed. When he looked at the official congressional records, he couldn't find any reference to it in the database. That left three possibilities. The bill had been signed into law without Congress knowing, Congress had voted on it and the records were being hidden from Curtis, or the bill hadn't been passed at all. Curtis concluded that the third option was the most likely. He assumed that Goodwin was lying about Nassara to gain financial support. She'd tell her followers that she had secret knowledge about the American economy. If they wanted this insider information, they should pay her for it. Goodwin may have been a con artist, but that doesn't mean all her claims are false. The government may not have implemented a reset yet, but they could have plans to do so in the next few years. That is, assuming the GCR isn't already in the works. On February 10, 2017, White House officials held a press conference to explain that China had lied about the value of their yuan to improve trade. A high-ranking official told reporters not to worry. He said, quote, We will all soon be at a level playing field. It sounded like a hint that the world's financial systems would be reset and every currency would have a similar value. This was great news for proponents of the GCR. Cash investors believed they'd finally see a huge return. One theorist named Nancy Thorner examined world events and tried to predict when the GCR would go into effect. On Wednesday, February 24th, 2020, Thorner read reports that several important computer programs run by the Federal Reserve had gone down. These systems allowed banks across the country to send cash back and forth electronically. Two days later on Friday, another massive power failure hit Visa and MasterCard. Apparently, no one was able to purchase anything with their credit cards during this time. Later, the Federal Reserve and the credit card companies claimed that the crashes weren't caused by an outside entity. In other words, no one had hacked them. Everyone said the problems were due to simple internal errors. Ultimately, it was just a coincidence that all the failures took place in the same week. But Thorner suspected something more nefarious was afoot. She believed that the Federal Reserve had intentionally tampered with the programs. To prove her point, she referenced statements from the chairman of the Federal Reserve, Jerome Powell. The week of the attack, Powell had spoken on the Federal Reserve's efforts to create a new form of payments. They called it Central Bank Digital Currency, otherwise known as CBDC. It was an entirely digital monetary system that would potentially wipe out all traces of physical cash. 
Powell said that the Federal Reserve was working hard to develop the system and that 2020 would be a, quote, important year for CBDC. Thorner believed that Powell was hinting at the outages. Perhaps the Federal Reserve had staged them to make people believe that the old financial system was outdated and subject to error. That would give the government an opportunity to transition to using the CBDC and replace all paper money. If that happened, then the world's governments could create a computer program that would automatically give all currency a one-to-one ratio. Then everyone really would be on a level playing field. CBDCs might sound like something out of science fiction, but the truth is they've already arrived. In March of 2021, reports came out that China had developed a prototype of the digital system, which they were testing in some cities. If it was successful, it would be expanded further. It's likely that other countries will follow in China's footsteps. But that doesn't mean that all physical cash will disappear. One of the biggest arguments against CBDCs is that they can always be traced. There's no anonymity. People who value their privacy will resist this change and pressure their representatives to keep physical alternatives to the digital currency. I can see that happening. But even if paper money stays, it's still possible for the government to adjust the value of Iraqi banknotes so they're equal to U.S. dollars. In fact, some economists believe world governments need to come together and re-examine the worth of all the world's currencies. Ultimately, It seems possible that the great currency reset is approaching in one form or another. Because of that, I have to give this theory a 6 out of 10. The GCR may happen, but probably not in the way people like Nassara, Goodwin, or Thorner say it will. None of them have real evidence that the government is secretly trying to reset the economy. A lot of this is rooted in interpreting vague language from financial and political leaders. And no one can prove that the Iraqi dinar will shoot up as a result. So I have to give this theory a 4 out of 10. We'll have to wait and see how global politics affect the possible shift to digital currency. And even if the government does reset the currency, there are many factors that could influence the dinar's value. We've already explored how war, terrorist groups, and foreign investors can all shape the way cash is printed and used. That's why, even if one or both of our conspiracy theories could be true, it's impossible to predict exactly how they'll impact the Iraqi economy. There are no guarantees that the dinar will perform in any specific way. If we can take anything from this discussion, it's that the economy is full of surprises. No one could predict that Hussein would invade Kuwait, or that the country would recover so quickly, or even that ISIS would develop its own currency. Ultimately, ventures can veer between boom and bust in a split second. Every investment, whether it's Iraqi dinar or a promising new product, is a risk. (music) 
thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. We'll be back next time for a new episode. You can find all episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories is a Spotify original from ParCast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Katovich. This episode of Conspiracy Theories was written by Rob Heckert, with writing assistance by Angela Jorgensen and Mackenzie Moore. Fact-checking by Haley Milliken, and research by Bradley Klein. Conspiracy Theories stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy. Hi, listeners. It's Carter. Here's a quick reminder to check out the Solved Murders four-part special Party Fowls. Every Wednesday in August, take a closer look at four celebrations that ended in horrific fashion. Follow the Spotify original from ParCast, Solved Murders. Listen free only on Spotify. Spotify.